Chapter Twenty Two of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Prison doors are opened. When Calhoun parted from Joyce, he sank back in the carriage and gave himself up to the most gloomy thoughts. The sorrow of parting from her took from him the joy of his escape. During the journey, his dusky driver did not speak a word. The drive seemed a long one to Calhoun, and he was thoroughly wearied when the carriage drew up by a log house surrounded by a small clearing. "'Here we be, Massa,' said Abe, as he alighted from his seat. "'Hope Massa had a good ride.' The door of the house was opened by a motherly-looking colored woman, and Abe, taking Calhoun once more in his arms, carried him into the house. Aunt Lisa, as the wife of Abe was called, seeing Calhoun looking so pale and thin, put her fat black hand on his forehead and said, Poor child, poor child, don't you worry. Aunt Lisa, take good care of you. Calhoun felt that he was among friends, friends that would prove faithful and true. He was carried up a ladder to a chamber. The upper part of the house was all in one room, rather low, but the rough walls were whitewashed, and everything was neat and clean. He was placed on a snow-white bed, and soon sank into a peaceful slumber. When he awoke, the sun was shining in at the window, and Aunt Lisa appeared with a breakfast good enough to tempt the appetite of one far more particular than Calhoun. The invalid remained with his kind friends two weeks, treated like an honored guest, and protected from every inquiring eye. He gained strength rapidly, and at the end of a week was able to walk out evenings when there was no danger of being seen. Once men who were searching for him entered the house, and Calhoun could hear every word that was said. His heart beat painfully, for it entered his mind that Abe and his wife might betray him for the sake of the reward offered. But the thought did injustice to these simple-minded people. As for the searchers, the loft of the house of a poor negro who had run away from slavery was the last place they thought of looking for an escaped confederate. Through Abe, Calhoun often heard from Joyce. She cheered him with words of love and comfort, but absolutely refused to come and see him, saying it would be dangerous. In this she was right, for Andrew Harmon was alert. He believed that Joyce had something to do with the disappearance of Calhoun, and had her closely watched. Fortunately, his suspicions did not extend to Abe, so that communication between Joyce and Calhoun was not interrupted. At the end of two weeks, he felt able to leave his place of concealment. But where should he go? He longed to be south, in the midst of the strife, but his heart was drawn toward Columbus, where his comrades lay languishing in prison. What could he do at Columbus? He did not know, but something might transpire that would enlighten him. At least, he would go and look over the field. Once out of the neighborhood, in his federal uniform and with Brown's discharge in his pocket, there would be little fear of detection. He made his preparations to go, wrote Joyce the letter which she prized so highly, and bade his kind protectors farewell, placing in their hands a hundred dollars. Their surprise and joy over the gift were about equal. "'The Lord keep you,' said Aunt Lisa, wiping her eyes. 
Calhoun had determined to start early in the evening, travel all night, lie concealed during the day, and travel the next night. By that time, he thought he would be so far away from the place of his escape that he could venture to take the cars without danger. Aunt Lisa had supplied him with ample provisions for the two days. He carried out his program, and on the morning of the second day found himself near a small town where he concluded to take the cars, but deemed it safer to wait for the night train. The conductor eyed him sharply when he paid his fare instead of showing a pass, for soldiers generally traveled on federal transportation. But the conductor took the money and passed on without remark. Opposite Calhoun in the car sat a gentlemanly-looking man, and much to Calhoun's surprise, when the conductor passed, he saw the gentleman make the sign of recognition of the Knights of the Golden Circle, and it was answered by the conductor. When the conductor next passed, Calhoun gave the sign. The man stared, but did not answer, but he seemed to be troubled, and passed through the cars frequently, and Calhoun saw that he was watching him closely. At length in passing, the conductor bent down and whispered to the gentleman opposite. Calhoun now knew another pair of eyes were observing him. Watching his opportunity, Calhoun gave this gentleman the sign of recognition. The gentleman shifted uneasily in his seat, but did not answer. I will give you something stronger, thought Calhoun, and the next time he caught the gentleman's eye, he gave the sign of distress. This was a sign no true knight could afford to ignore. Leaning over, the gentleman said, My boy, you look pale. Have you been sick? Very, and now I need friends, answered Calhoun. Come over here and tell me about it, said the gentleman. Calhoun took a seat by his side, and the man whispered, Are you a deserter? Are they after you? Yes, said Calhoun. Where are you going? To Columbus. That is a poor place to go to keep out of the hands of Lincoln's minions, answered the man. I am not afraid, said Calhoun. What I want to know is where I can find friends in Columbus who I can trust, true, firm friends of the South. My name is Pettus, replied the man. I reside in Columbus. Once let me be satisfied as to who you are and what you are wearing the uniform for, and I may be able to help you. That is easily answered, said Calhoun. But first, I must be fully satisfied as to you. Let me prove you, my brother. Calhoun found that Mr. Pettis was high up in the order and was violent in his hatred of the Lincoln government. He could be trusted. I am not a federal soldier, said Calhoun, after he had fully tested him. I am wearing this uniform as a disguise. I am a Confederate officer. What? Escaped from Johnson Island? asked Mr. Pettis in astonishment. No, I am one of Morgan's officers. Mr. Pettis nearly jumped off the seat in surprise. Morgan's officers are all in the penitentiary, he gasped. One is not, and never was, answered Calhoun. Mr. Pettis regarded him closely, and then said, It can't be, but it must be. Is your name Pennington? It is, replied Calhoun. Why, the papers have been full of your escape, but the general opinion seemed to be that you wandered away in a delirium and died. Which you see is not so, said Calhoun with a smile. How in the world did you get away? 
That is a secret which I cannot tell even you. Very well, but Mr. Pennington, you must come home with me. You will find friends in Columbus, many of them, who will be delighted to meet you. When Columbus was reached, Calhoun, on advice of Mr. Pettis, bought a suit of citizen's clothes. For, said he, we knights hate the sight of that uniform. It's the badge of tyranny. Calhoun saw that he had found a friend indeed in Mr. Pettis. No Southerner could be more bitter toward the Lincoln government than he. He fairly worshipped Philandingham and said if he would only return to Ohio, he would be defended by a hundred thousand men. He was especially indignant over the way Morgan and his officers were treated. We have schemed and schemed how to help them, said he, but see no way except we storm that cursed penitentiary as the Bastille was stormed, and he added with emphasis, the day is fast approaching when we will do it. For three days Calhoun remained at Mr. Pettis's, worrying his brain as to how he might help his general, but every plan proposed was rejected as impractical. On the third morning he happened to pick up a paper, and glancing over its columns saw an advertisement which caused every nerve in his body to tingle. It was an advertisement for a boy to work in the dining room and to wait on the tables at the penitentiary. The advertisement stated that the sole duty of the boy was to wait on the table when the Confederate officers ate, as they objected to being waited on by convicts. In less than five minutes, Calhoun was in his Federal uniform and on his way to the penitentiary to apply for the position. "'You do not look very strong,' said the warden kindly. "'Do you think you could fill the bill?' "'I am sure I can,' said Calhoun. "'Only try me and see.' "'Well,' replied the warden, "'I'd rather hire a boy who has served his country as you have, "'and I will give you a trial.' Thus, to his great joy, Calhoun found himself hired to wait upon his old comrades in arms. With what feelings he commenced his duties, can be imagined. Would they recognize him, and in their surprise give him away? No, he thought not. They knew too well how to control themselves for that. It was with a beating heart that Calhoun waited for the time of the first meal. It came, and the Confederate prisoners came marching in. How Calhoun's heart thrilled at the sight of his old comrades. But if they recognized him, they did not show it by look or sign. When the meal was finished and the prisoners marched out, Calhoun managed to give Morgan a little slip of paper. On it was written, I am here to help you if I can. Be of good cheer. But how could Calhoun help them? Even at mealtime, guards stood everywhere watching every move. His duties did not take him out of the dining room. Calhoun began by making a careful survey of the building in which the prisoners were confined. Fortune favored him. One day he made a remark to one of the employees of the prison that the floor of the building seemed to be remarkably dry and free from damp. It should be, was the reply. There is an air chamber under the floor. Like a flash, there came to Calhoun a plan of escape. If this air chamber could be reached, a tunnel might be run out. He took careful notes of all the surroundings and drew a plan of the buildings and surrounding grounds. These he managed to pass to Morgan unobserved. 
At the next mealtime, as Morgan passed him, he said, as if to himself, no tools. This was a difficult matter. Nothing of any size could be passed to them without discovery. But in the hospital, Calhoun found some large and finely tempered table knives. He managed to conceal several of these around his person, and one by one they were given to Morgan. Calhoun now waited in feverish excitement for the success of the plan. He had done all he could. The rest depended upon the prisoners themselves. Through the shrewdness and indomitable energy of Captain Thomas H. Hines, the work was carried to a successful termination inside the prison wall. General Morgan occupied a cell in the second tier and could do nothing. Only those who occupied cells on the ground floor had any hopes of escaping. Captain Hines, with infinite labor, made an opening through the floor of his cell into the air chamber. Once in the air chamber, they could work without being discovered. With only the table knives to work with, these men went through two solid walls, one five feet and the other six feet in thickness. Not only that, but they went through eleven feet of grouting. Then, working from under, they went through the floors of six cells, leaving only a thin scale of cement, which could be broken through by pressure from the foot. The work was commenced November 4 and finished November 24. Thus, in twenty days, seven men, working one at a time, had accomplished what seemed almost impossible. During these days, Calhoun could only wait and hope. As the prisoners passed him in the dining room, all they could say was, progressing, not discovered yet, all is well so far. At last, on the 24th, Calhoun heard the welcome words, finished, first stormy night. Calhoun now examined the timetables and found that a train left Columbus for Cincinnati at 1.15 a.m., arriving in Cincinnati before the prisoners were aroused in the morning. So he wrote on a slip of paper, Escape as soon after midnight as possible. He believed that the train could be taken with safety. The afternoon of November 27, the weather became dark and stormy. At supper time, Calhoun heard the glad word, Tonight. As soon as his duties were done, he hurried to the home of Mr. Pettis, exchanged his uniform for citizen's clothes, telling Mr. Pettis his work at the penitentiary was done, and he had decided to leave. Ask no questions. It is better that you know nothing, said Calhoun. Mr. Pettis took his advice, but he was not surprised in the morning when he heard that Morgan had escaped. For General Morgan to escape, it was necessary for him to occupy a lower cell. His brother, Captain Dick Morgan, occupied the cell next to Captain Hines. The captain, giving up his chance of escaping, effected an exchange of cells with his brother. This was easily accomplished, as they were about of a size, and it was quite dark in these cells when they were locked in. The general had been allowed to keep his watch. When a few minutes after twelve came, he arose, fixed a dummy in his bed to resemble a man sleeping, and breaking through the thin crust over the opening with his foot, slipped into the air chamber. He gave the signal, 
and was quickly joined by his companions. Captain Morgan had made a ladder out of strips of bedclothing, and by the aid of this ladder they hoped to scale two walls, one twenty feet high, which would stand between them in liberty after they had emerged from the tunnel. A little before midnight, Calhoun made his way as close as he durst to the place where he knew the wall must be scaled. Not three hundred feet away, several guards were gathered around a fire. The night was cold, and the guards kept close to the fire. Slowly the minutes passed. The city clocks struck half-past twelve. Would they never come? Had their flight been detected? Suddenly a dark spot appeared on top of the wall, then another and another, until Calhoun counted seven. They were all there. Silently they slid down the rope ladder, the talk and laughter of the guards ringing in their ears. But noiselessly they glided away, and the darkness hid them. This way, whispered Calhoun, when out of hearing of the guards. They stopped for consultation. It would not do to keep together. They decided to go two and two. Calhoun handed each a sum of money. There was a strong clasping of hands, a whispered farewell, and they who had dared so much separated. The next morning there was consternation in the penitentiary at Columbus. The news of Morgan's escape was flashed over the country. The federal authorities were astonished, dumbfounded. A reward of $5,000 was offered for his recapture. Every house in Columbus was searched, but to no purpose. John Morgan had flown. End of chapter 22